0: and welcome to our February episode of Sarah Shady, Public Philosopher. I'm joined today in studio with my colleague, Dr. Dan Yim, who is a professor in the philosophy department here at Bethel. And in honor of Friday, February 14th, Valentine's Day, we thought we'd talk a little bit about the philosophy of love this month. Uh, Dan teaches a class here at Bethel um, on philosophies of love and sex. It meets an L course. It will be taught in spring of 2021. So students, if you're listening, uh, put that on your radar for a class to take next year. Dan, welcome to the show. And um, why don't we just Start off with talking a little bit about the ways that we even use the word
1: love. Well, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, You know, Valentine's Day is a funny thing. Uh, Heather and I don't celebrate it at all. Early on, Our first few Valentine's Days together were such disasters that we just decided, let's just pretend this holiday doesn't exist.
0: Right. It's a funny kind (laughs) of cultural thing that there's so many expectations put on it, and it's really just one day of the year. I
1: know. I know. So we just decided to uh, eliminate that from our lives. Took a lot of stress away. (laughs) But for those of you listening who love Valentine's Day, I totally support your... uh, your, uh, engagement with the holiday. But yeah, um, you know, one of the things that I find funny about the very word love is, uh, it's overuse. I mean, we apply it to so many different things. We apply it to different kinds of foods. I love pizza, different drinks. I love Mountain Dew or something like that. Um, we talk about loving certain kinds of experiences and, um, I think that it's helpful to scale it back to um, the original context where we think of love as being special, and I think that's in the context of relationships, especially with other human beings. And um, and once we narrow it down to that context, I think a really interesting question is: Are are there features that All of those kinds of love have in common in order to count as love.
0: Well, that's an interesting question. So like, is there any way in which my statement, I love chocolate chip cookies, is similar to my statement, I love Jamie, my husband, or Mm -hmm. I love my kids, or I love my dog? Um, Yeah, so where do philosophers tend to go on that question?
1: Well, they tend to focus right now on the love that exists between um, human beings, because at least there we're limiting it to a certain context. And if there's a chance that there is something common across the board on love, then uh, that's where it's going to be uh, more more readily found. And I guess when I think of concepts, I make a distinction between really strict concepts and other concepts that are a little more vague um, at the boundaries like take a triangle uh, the properties of a triangle would be having three sides internal angles um, equal to 180 and it's a close figure in idealized Euclidean space and if you just list those features guaranteed any triangle that exists not only will have those features but must have those features and then I wonder is love like that is there a, a, a special cluster of, uh, properties that each and every instance of love will have, but also must have. And I think that the prospects for defining love strictly, um, are pretty dim. <laughs>
0: pretty interesting. Dim. Yeah. That it's, um, it is interesting how there are certain concepts, um, Justice, uh, goodness, other things too that have are, are fuzzier around the edges Absolutely. when we try to get to definitions of them.
1: Absolutely.
0: One of the things that, um, you know, as an example for students when we're talking about, um, happiness, for example, the way that we think of happiness in 2020 is sort of this like warm, fuzzy, I had a lot of fun, I'm happy today, mm-hmm. uh, kind of notion. And I try to contrast that with the deeper sense in which the Greeks would have thought of happiness as, you know, eudaimonia and human f- flourishing. Mm-hmm. Is there a way in which our contemporary use of love has... um is kind of a distortion from how the ancient Greeks would have thought of it? Or are there similarities there?
1: Um, well, it's hard to talk about what love today means in the context of human relationships, comparing it to um, uh, what it may have meant way back when. I mean, there are certain kinds of uh, realities that we have now that just didn't exist back then. For example, this idea that, males and females are equally valuable and, um, uh, the, our form of egalitarianism just wouldn't have even existed back then. Uh, furthermore, um, uh, love relationships were typically between unequals back then. Mm -hmm. Today, we don't really think that that's a good way to Engage in loving right, relationships, Right. especially the romantic kind, since we are on uh, the cusp of Valentine's Day. Um, so, yeah, I I don't know if there's a cross historical uh, set of features that love must have. And I think this is where it's more helpful to think of the concept of love less like Trying to define a triangle and more like uh, what Wittgenstein called family resemblances. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, if you imagine uh, a family of five, so uh, two parents and a bunch of kids, and let's say that um, the kids are all biologically related to both parents. Well, if you line them up, you can kind of tell that they all belong together, but no one child or one parent is going to contain all the features that, um, there's, there's no particular set of features that each individual has. It's more like, um, almost a gestalt. You just look at it and you think, okay, that's a family. They belong together. And, um, some have certain features in common, others overlap with other features. And so it's, as you said, a kind of fuzzy boundary concept. And I kind of think of, of all the various kinds of love that, that, we experience as human beings with each other, um, have family resemblance relationships. For example, um, a romantic relationship is very different than the relationship of love that exists between, um, a parent and a child, but there are some resemblances there. This idea of intense desire to be together, um, intense, uh, concern about the other's well-being, uh, being. And, and especially, I think, this idea that there is some kind of special union or, or we, as in the word W E, some we that has been formed that is, uh, special and and singularly unique.
0: Right. And so if I think about, um, those kind of common features or resemblances between love of a friend, love of a romantic partner, love of other family members that aren't romantic partners, they do seem distinctly different than love of the Green Bay Packers, (laughs) love of chocolate chip cookies. Why did I know you were going to bring
1: that? You can work the Packers in somehow.
0: I try. I try. (laughs) So are there family resemblances that connect love in in ways that are relevant to bringing in some of these other concepts or is that a misuse of the term love?
1: Well, I don't want to say it's a misuse of the term love. I'd probably say it's a conceptual inflation um, because I don't want to, you know, be that person who says, oh, you can't use this word this way. I I almost want to, I'd rather keep the word love, but in my head I put these little subscripts next to these words. So love one, love two. Uh, And I'm mostly interested in um, the sort of core idea of love as a bond of relationship between human beings. That's what I'm most interested in. And um, Since it's Valentine's Day, if we focus on these special romantic relationships, I think what makes um, a love between two individuals who are romantically interested in each other, possibly to the point of wanting to pledge their lives to each other, What makes it interesting and different than, say, a parent's love for a child um, and the relationship that exists is that the former uh, presumably is ideally a lifelong relationship, whereas the latter, the the parent-child relationship, I mean, you're always going to be a parent, obviously, but... What you're preparing the kid to do is to eventually kind of not need you anymore right right you're you're preparing them to to launch them and then sort of uh, be independent whereas um, that relationship of of um, lifelong pledge that happens in marriage or other kinds of uh, monogamous arrangements that's Sort of a lifelong deal.
0: It's interesting because the differences in that way, um, bring up for me another sort of question in which is love, um, natural or instinctual? Can love be taught? Because I, I feel like to some degrees in loving my children, I, and raising my children, I want them to eventually not need me anymore and be independent of me. Yet I also feel a responsibility that I'm trying to teach them how to love well, do you think love is something that can be learned? Um,
1: um, you know, I think that, of course, certain kinds of behaviors can be learned. Um, I don't know the degree to which those behaviors, uh, connections to appropriate emotions and thoughts can be taught. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I just don't know. Uh, that's probably. Something that I would be really interested in asking our psychology colleagues just down the hall. Yeah. And that might be a fun episode um, for later. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. I don't know.
0: So as we're thinking about um, trying to give some lines around the concept of love um and as we're thinking about this is it something that can be taught to what degree is love conceptually divine defined as a feeling Mm. versus an action versus a rational choice or commitment a will to love something
1: right
0: how do you categorize
1: it well that reminds me of a debate um in the philosophy of love about um what counts as the highest or ideal type of love? So, um, there are two kinds of ways of thinking about how love operates. And, uh, in the literature, it's often called the valuation model or the appraisal model. So, in the valuation model, uh, the object that is loved, um, has value not because there's a response to some pre-existing feature of the object that benefits or is attractive to the lover, but rather that the very act of loving the the object makes that object valuable to the lover and hence lovable. Uh, The other model uh, would be, um, well, let me give an example of the appraisal model. Uh, I'm sorry, the valuation model. Let me give you an example of the valuation model. When I was, uh, when when several years ago, I found out that uh, we were going to have a kid. um, I think I'm remembering correctly, but within a very short period of time, I fell in love with this child that was growing.
0: Mm -hmm. um,
1: And, uh, was, uh, essentially just a multicellular organism at the, at the time. But I, I fell in love with this child and, um, it wasn't because there was some feature I was responding to. It was more like a, a kind of, uh, it's hard to call it a choice, but there was an instinct, uh, to love. And, the choice to love this multicellular organism uh, made the object, I don't mean object in this cold sense, I'm just using technical language, but the object of my love took on value because I was loving it. Sure. And um, on the on the other side, the appraisal model, the idea is that love... Um, the best kind of love is a rational, sensible love or a love that makes sense or a love that is competent. And um, one way to describe it is, wouldn't it be really incompetent to love things willy-nilly with no rationale? So the idea here is you see something in the object that is lovable to you, And your love is actually being drawn out as a response to a feature or a property that merits or elicits your loving response. And so the object already has a certain kind of value and um, it's lovable. Therefore, you love it. So
0: it's interesting because is there anything that then would be unlovable Or would all things have in them the potential for someone to love them?
1: Right. Good question. I guess on the valuation model, um, all things would potentially have uh, the capacity to be loved because um, their being loved is a function of the choice of the lover. Whereas on the appraisal model, you know, love has to be merited in -hmm. some sense and so um no uh there in principle there are going to be objects maybe even people who just um are not going to be loved and it's a function of their properties not a function of the willingness or unwillingness of the lover um, and so there's a big debate about which of these two models makes the most sense because, you know, there are strong arguments and intuitions to think that um, that the appraisal model makes more sense. Namely, uh, I'm responding competently to something that is lovable. But then again, there's uh, a lot of arguments that suggest that this Ability to love something, even if it has no particular value to you, um, is a kind of noble virtue, Mm -hmm. almost godlike.
0: Right. it's interesting because Kierkegaard makes uh, an argument like that in his, uh, book Works on Love, that all things are lovable because of the watermark of God in them, Mm. uh, and, but then Kierkegaard pushes that to this kind of weird place where actually the, the most righteous thing to do or the most noble, virtuous thing to do is love the things that are really hard to love. And actually loving the people that we naturally love, um, isn't really following the commandment of love God and love neighbor because that's easy. That we only follow the commandment if we're if we're loving when it's hard to do so oh
1: right and and that's part of uh the uh the battery of arguments that suggest that the most ideal type of love is that seemingly humanly impossible kind um that is loving that which might even be objectively unlovable.
0: And then you have such a weird consequence to that, though, because then that means that the people that we often love most, that 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 love is not the ideal form of love.
1: Right. Because most of our relationships, at least they start from an appraisal. I mean, when I make friends, I don't just pick them at random. I pick people who um, have properties that I find delightful and I, frankly, just avoid people that I don't find that way. And I don't feel bad about it. And I make a choice. But what happens in in some of my closer friendships, I find, is that a relationship that started with me responding to something that I loved in the person evolves and becomes the kind of relationship where where I just love the person regardless of... Their personality or it's just one of those things where I've kind of transitioned into this new way of relating to the person where they're just lovable because of the relationship and the choice in the history. So,
0: right. And and I do think sometimes there's a rational aspect of that, that you're going to choose to love the person in moments when they are less lovable because right. of the overall commitment to the relationship.
1: Sure. Is and loving um, as a whole. Oh, and that's a good comment going back to the romantic concept of love because, um, there's, there are also all sorts of fun discussions about, about specifically about romantic love. Um, does romantic love have to be reciprocated in order for it to count as love? Yeah. You know, and the students really have a fun time with that question because it would suggest that um, one person can only love another person if the other person loves them back. Mm -hmm. So there's no one directional love. It has to be um, a bridge, a relation. Right. Right. There's there's that question. Um, And does the love in a relationship have to be constant in order for it to count as romantic love? For example, can two people who are in a long-term relationship – just have a kind of of gap where, no, they're not in love anymore. Mm-hmm. And then they find that they recover their love. Does that mean that we're talking about two separate relationships now, one that ended? Or are we talking about one continuous loving relationship that just had a lull in it? So there's just all sorts of fun questions that can be asked i think um in the case of romantic relationships one of the uh, more explosive questions and fun questions is uh, must it be exclusive Mm -hmm. and the idea being well can't a person actually be romantically in love with more than one person simultaneously
0: Um, That's interesting. And it also, I feel like then there's um, a reverse way of asking that question. When I'm deeply in love with someone, Mm -hmm. am I okay with someone else also being deeply in love with that person? Or do I want it to be exclusive?
1: Or how about this? I was thinking even even, um, a little bit uh, nuttier. So suppose you're deeply in love with a person in the romantic sense. Can you also simultaneously... You, who are deeply in love with this person, person X, can you also be deeply in love with person Y simultaneously? So you're in love with two different people.
0: Right. Or does the... Right. So it seems like we could imagine that being the case. But at the conceptual level, have I violated the core of what it means to love person one by also loving person two?
1: Right. And that always inspires fun discussions in class about... Um, The role of exclusivity in love,
0: right? Which also has so many cultural Mm -hmm. um, uh, cultural influences in terms of the way that we think of love as an Mm -hmm. exclusive thing, primarily in the contemporary
1: West, right? Especially in the context of marriage, Mm -hmm. right? Um, But if we were to go back in history, and not even very far, they might answer that question quite differently,
0: right? Even Christians might answer that question. Differently.
1: Right. Because of the way that I mean, for us, marriage and love are so fused together. Right. Uh, but that's right. actually a quite recent phenomenon. Right. Um, marriage had nothing to do with love for the vast majority of human history. Yeah,
0: I talk about that a lot with students in a class I'm currently teaching on friendship in the way that love, even passionate love, historically was often thought more about what's happening between me and my friends. And in mm-hmm. that context, particularly, it would have been same-sex friends because, say, men during the early Enlightenment are not going to think of women as rationally capable of that level of friendship or right. love. Right,
1: right. And even going back to the um, ancient Roman era, uh, it was frowned upon for a husband uh, to be too deeply in love with his wife because the idea there was such uh, a deep, passionate love uh, would be a dangerous competitor to his fidelity to the state. Mm -hmm. And so it was frowned upon and it was sometimes referred to as adultery. That a husband would really love his wife uh, because your faithfulness should be to the state. So, yeah, all sorts of interesting stuff looking at it historically. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I like teaching this class.
0: Yeah. So, if you're listening and you're finding yourself not the recipient of roses and chocolates this Friday, just know there's solidarity in most of human history it's a total, <laughs> on that.
1: It's a total made up holiday. For those of you who don't participate, um, I got I I've got your back.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yep. Um when I was a kid growing up, my mom always made Valentine's Day a family event and she'd cook a really nice dinner and serve it on china and we'd celebrate together as a family. So we've kind of continued that tradition with our kids.
1: Um I didn't even know Valentine's Day was coming up to be honest. Um my little <laughs> my little girl reminded me because she needs help making right? Valentines, Valentine's cards yeah, for the whole class. So um yeah, not really my jam.
0: <laughs> well, thanks so much for joining me here today uh, in the studio. And as I said, students, this is something you can take a course in, dive further into. It would be really fun to uh, loop this back into a future conversation looking at neuroscience um, and speaking with some of our psychology friends sure would. and colleagues on this topic. So, um, I'll quote a little bit of Kierkegaard towards the end. Well, it's not really a quote. I'll, I'll paraphrase a little bit of, of uh, Kierkegaard loves a duty. You can never love too much. Um, it's a continual obligation for us. Love God and love others and go do a little bit of good in the world this week.